Good morning. Good morning. It is a good morning. We are going to be considering a text from Matthew 16. So if you would turn there, uh, we've got a little bit of a visual up on the screen as well, I hope. Um, if it doesn't come up, that's okay. It's really not much anyway. But there are a few slides there. Um, as was mentioned, we are beginning a um, small group series um, using the book, What If Jesus Meant What He Said? Of course, the book itself is not scripture, but it's based upon the scripture. And we're going to use it just as a guide to help move us along. It has some good questions um, at the end of each chapter that we'll consider. So what I've been tasked with is providing an introduction uh, an introduction to the small group series, an introduction to the book, and of course we'll read the book's introduction later tonight, Lord willing. Maybe what we'll do, uh, because I, I know that I'll quickly get ahead of myself, is um, can we read together Matthew 16, beginning at verse 13? And I know we don't do this often, but can I ask that whoever is able to would stand? In the book of Nehemiah, when the scripture was read, the people stood. So I know we don't do it often. We don't have to do it every time. But would you stand with me as we read uh, these words? Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13, says, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples, his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men." Then Jesus said to his disciples, and this is the verse, by the way, that the book is based upon, or it's divided out in four sections based on this verse. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each one according to his works. Thank you. You may be seated. Uh, the book uh, that we're using as a guide is divided out into four sections. 
The four sections are just Matthew 16, verse 24, split up. If anyone desires to come after me, number one, let him deny himself, number two, and take up his cross, number three, and follow me, number four. So that's the division of the book. I don't want you to get lost this morning because I'm not going to focus on that verse, not yet, because we're going to look at the context of the chapter before we get into that verse. Uh, the uh, title today, if I were to put a title to this message, is up there on the screen, and it's that bottom part, the Christ, the Son, the Crucified One. And can I tell you that I was so delighted at the uh, the uh, worship service this morning, the, the, the remembrance meeting as we were here this morning, considering uh, the Savior, considering our own weakness, and considering what He's done for us, the Christ. The Son, the Crucified One. You can flip to the next slide there if you would. Uh, Maybe I can do it as well. If you can, forward it. What I want to do this morning, by God's grace, is I want to consider the context of this call of Christ. This is the call of Christ. If anyone desires to come after me, Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's the call of Christ. But I want to look at the context of the call. If you would go one, two, three, just click those next three out there. So the first thing we're going to consider this morning is the confession concerning Christ. The second thing we're going to consider this morning is the cross for Christ. And then the last thing is that call of Christ in verses 24 to 27. What I want to begin by saying this morning, and it is my heartfelt belief and my suggestion to you, and that is this. If you are never gripped by the confession concerning Christ, if you are never gripped by the cross of Christ, you will never be gripped by the call of Christ. If you do not understand the confession concerning Christ, that is who he is, Who is this one that's calling you? If you do not understand and are never gripped by the cross of Christ, that is what he's done for you, you might as well forget the call of Christ. The call of Christ is, is, it really is a bit strange almost, at least by the world standards. Listen to this tagline. This is Disney World. Creating happiness through magical experiences. Ikea says to create a better everyday life for the many people. Macy's says our brand promises a magical experience every day. But Christ says if anyone desires to come after me, if you want my brand, this is what it will require. Let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. That's a strange way to try to assemble a following. Wouldn't you agree? If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. What I'm suggesting to you is that if you don't understand, if you are never gripped with who it is that's calling, who it is that's making this call to you, you'll never be gripped by the call. You'll never obey the call if you don't understand who it is that's calling. There is a story told 
of a military scene, well, it was a military camp, and there was a, a, a lowly private there in the rec hall. And um, as he's there in the rec hall, the colonel comes in, the high-ranking colonel, and he comes in and he sets flowers out across many of the tables in the rec room. A little while later, the rec sergeant comes in and he says, who put these flowers all over these tables? And in his colorful military language, of course. And the sulkin and frightened private said, well, uh, sergeant, the colonel did. To which the sergeant replied, well, my, aren't those pretty flowers? (laughs) Rank matters, doesn't it? Rank matters. Who is it that's calling? Who is it that that has made this proclamation to you if you're willing to come after me, deny yourself, take up the cross and follow me? Rank matters. What I'm going to suggest to you this morning is that the one who's calling you in this radical way is the one who holds the highest place in heaven and earth. Rank matters. He is the one that the Bible says is preeminent. That's not prominent. Prominent means you're someone that's famous. But preeminent means you hold the highest place. The very first place. Rank matters. The one who's calling you is the Son of God from heaven. And of course, you can go beyond that to consider not only who he is, but what he's done. The cross for Christ. What he's done for mankind. Indeed, what he's done for you. And so who is it that's calling? It is Christ who's calling. And so the scene is set here, and I I want to give just a little bit of buildup, a little bit of background. Because, of course, the gospel accounts are narrative accounts. That is their consecutive flow, a story being told of the life of Christ. And so there's been a tremendous buildup throughout the Gospel of Matthew, throughout each of the Gospels, of course, concerning this man, Jesus Christ. So when we come to Matthew 16 and verse 13, and it says, Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? This is a critical question. I would encourage you, as you're able, take just the gospel of Matthew and read through it consecutively and see the way that the story is building. Here was one who people said was born of a virgin, born of a virgin, one who Herod was out to get. The king was seeking him to kill him, to put him to death because there were some that said this one would be the king of the Jews. One day, this man, Christ, Jesus, was being baptized and some were there and they witnessed the heavens open up. And a voice came from the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then this man, Jesus, began to teach. And he taught in such a way that people were astonished. They'd never heard teaching like this. And so the multitudes began to gather. Matthew 4 tells us that there were multitudes of people following him because of his teaching and because of his miracles. This is the way the story is building. Who is this man? In the beginning of the Gospel of John, this man, Jesus, begins to call men to himself. Would you follow me? Would you follow me? And some of these men actually believed he was the Messiah. They went to some of their others, to their brothers, and they said, We found him! We found the one that the Scriptures have talked about. The Messiah, he's here. We believe it's him. And I'm sure there were questions. Of course there were questions. 
Could it be? Is it really him? And as he began to heal people and do things that no one had ever seen, read through the Gospels. Look at the things that are recorded there. If the New Testament scriptures are true, then indeed he is the one. And this is what was swirling around. This man is healing people. He's cleansed lepers. He's given sight to the blind. He's opened the mouth of those who cannot speak, the mute. He's given hearing to the deaf. He's raised the dead. He's fed multitudes with little. Who is this man? Could it be the Messiah? Could it be? This is what's happening throughout the Gospels. And on top of that, this man, Jesus, he's rebuking the religious leaders, the religious system. Who could this be that's standing up to the Pharisees, to the Sadducees, who's rebuking them in their error? Who is this man? And so this is the scene that is happening here. And of course, there are those who are following Christ, like Peter and others of his disciples, that do believe. And so he says to them, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Different things were being said about this man, Jesus. Who is he? Who is he? You know, in our world today, the same exact thing is happening. If you were to go take a poll on the street, you would find that there are many different opinions about Jesus. Most often, people would say a good man, a religious leader, a solid teacher, a rabbi of some sort. Even many in the Jewish community still regard him as such. It was interesting because I was listening to a, an interview and... Um, it was an interview with a man named Ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro is a, a prominent, conservative, political speaker and leader, many followers, and he's also a Jew. It was Christians that were interviewing him and talking, and they talked about Jesus. And they asked him about what he thought about Jesus. And, and he gave kind of the typical answer. He said, a good teacher, uh, a, a rabbi, you know, a Jewish rabbi. But of course, we don't believe he's the Messiah. We don't believe he's the son of God. And it was interesting because one of the, one of the per- people interviewing him in a loving way said, but, but he said he was the son of God. So how do you say he's good? He, he's lied to you. He says he was the Messiah. How could he be a good man? How could he be a good teacher if he's a liar? That doesn't make any sense. And he backed off quickly. And you know what he said? He said, Well, that's what the New Testament says. If the New Testament were true, then I would believe that Jesus was the Messiah. I found that fascinating. If the New Testament were true, this is his mindset, then I'd have to receive Jesus as the Messiah because he fulfilled what God had prophesied would happen. And so who is this man? Well, there are many opinions, many opinions. I came across a testimony and I found this very interesting a woman by the name of Carolyn Poole. She's an ex-Christian scientist. She says she was a third-generation Christian scientist. She was engulfed in this false religion. And she says that she began to ask to do a Bible study, and she could never get agreement from the church leaders to study the Bible. They'll do lots of other things, she said, and they claim it's based upon the Bible, but she said they would never agree to sit down and do a Bible study. She said, I thought that was a bit odd. She says, one day, 
uh, two ladies came to her door and offered to her a Bible study. And she said, well, that's exactly what I've been looking for. So she sat down and began to study the Bible with them. And listen to what she said. She said, one day during our home study, we came to Matthew 16 and verse 15, where Jesus asked his disciples who they said he was. The disciples answered, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But Jesus asked, and who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus responded, this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. She says, after the women in the home Bible study left, those words kept ringing in my mind. It was as though Miss Eddie's statements, Mary Eddie, the leader of the Christian scientists, it was, it was as though Mary, Miss Eddie's statements, it became clear that she denied Jesus is the Christ. And she gives various examples. But Jesus said he is the Christ. Jesus was asking me in my heart, do you believe her, Miss Eddie, or do you believe me? At first I didn't know. I cried. I threshed it about in my mind. I came to the decision that if Jesus could do the miracles he did, he certainly should know who he is. I concluded that Jesus must be the Christ. And so Jesus would ask his disciples, who do men say that I am? That's a good question to ask. What is it you hear out there in the world? What do you hear people saying about the Christ, about Jesus? And so they give their various answers. But then he says, but who do you say that I am? And here was a woman, I just read a testimony, and she says that question rang in my mind. Who do you say that I am? And I propose it to you today. Who do you say that Jesus is? You must address this question. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, the Messiah. If God were to take on flesh and come to mankind, wouldn't you want to know it? Wouldn't you want to consider it? This is his claim. And he backed it up by his teaching. He backed it up by his miracles. He backed it up by his character. A pure life, a sinless life. No one could find fault in this man. Who do you say that he is? Who do you say that he is? I tell you this morning, if you're not gripped by the reality of who Jesus is, you might as well forget the call of Christ. You must come to a heartfelt understanding. And I'm saying for those who have known the Lord for many years, for myself, I need to come back to who it is that Christ is. Rank matters. This is the one who holds the highest place in heaven above, the very Son of God. And He's calling you. And he's calling me. Who do you say that Jesus is? Have you been gripped by the reality of the Son of God, the preeminent one who came into earth, took on flesh, was like you and I, like we just sang, human, but the Son of God, walked this earth a sinless and perfect life and then gave his life for you? Have you been gripped by this? Is it real to you? I tell you, we will not fulfill the call of Christ if we don't wrestle with this confession concerning Christ and be gripped by it. We oftentimes will say, get a grip. Well, I'm telling you this morning, get gripped. We can't do it. The Spirit of God can do it. But you do you, your part by meditating on the Word of God. Consider who it is. And so, thou art the Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He proved who it was in many ways. And I could probably list 
15 or 20. I've boiled them down to four things that I've considered this morning, and I want to share with you regarding who it is uh, uh, that's calling you today, the Christ. And uh, let's see if this will forward. Can you forward that for me again, please? I've grouped them into two settings, and that is first uh, his wisdom and his works. His wisdom and his works. And secondly, uh, his character and his claims. His character and his claims. I've already given you some of this, but we're going to go through them just briefly. His wisdom. Uh, Look at Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Now, here we're introduced in Luke chapter 2 to this man, Jesus, as a young man, a 12-year-old. And it says this, and I can't give the whole background of the story, but let's just pick up uh, in verse 45. So when they did not find him, Jesus, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And listen to these words. And all who heard him were astonished. The wisdom of this young man, this 12-year-old Jesus, astonished the religious leaders, astonished them. Many a preacher have called this man Jesus the master questioner, the master questioner. The wisdom that's found in his questioning of those who would address him is remarkable. Think of this. A man came to Jesus one day. And said to him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Many of us salivate at the question. I want someone to come ask me. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Oh boy, I'd give him the Romans road. I'd lay it out for him. Tell him exactly how Christ, I've come to save you. Or Christ would say, I came to save you. I'm going to die on the cross. But he doesn't do that. What he does do is he says to him a question. Why do you call me good? And he begins to open the man up to his own false assumptions. The wisdom of Christ was astounding. In his questioning, in his answering, every situation, every circumstance, grace and truth, whether it was those who tried to trip him up, or whether it was those who were seeking and lost the wisdom of this man. Matthew 22 records for us, and you can look at it, three questions that were posed to him in order to trip him up. And each time, the answers astound the men. The first question was, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And they were trying to trip him up. The second question was, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be, this woman, who has had seven husbands because they keep passing away? And lastly, which is the greatest commandment? And as the Lord goes through and answers these questions, the men are left speechless. Let's look at one verse there in Matthew 22. Matthew 22 and verse 22. When they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. The wisdom of Christ. Look at verse 33. When the multitudes heard this, They were astonished at his teaching, the wisdom of Christ. And then the Lord turns it 
on the religious ones of that day. And look at verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he David's son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. This man Christ, Jesus, full of wisdom. As the crowds listened to his teaching, his answering, his questioning, they were astonished at his wisdom. He proved he was the Son of God. Not only his wisdom, but his works. We went through through a few of them already. Here came a man healing the paralyzed, casting out demons, calming the seas, raising the lame, raising the dead, giving sight to the blind, giving speech to the mute, feeding the thousands, many, many more healed just by touching his garments. Who is he? Who is this man? Peter's proclamation was true. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. It is interesting, too, that in the Jewish community, as I understand, Of course, they do not believe that Jesus is the Christ that is the anointed one, the Messiah. They do not, by and large. They also do not believe that the Messiah will be the Son of God. To them, it is blasphemy to think of God taking human form. But here stood a man, and the only reasonable explanation for his wisdom And his works, and as we're going to see, his character, his claims, is that he indeed is the God-man. Not just God's man on earth, the Messiah, but indeed God himself from heaven, the God-man, Christ Jesus. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. His wisdom portrayed this, verified this. His works portrayed this, the miracles, the things he did. His character also affirmed his deity, his messiahship, that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. Matthew 4 tells us that he was tempted by the devil. And we went through that several weeks ago. The the devil took every possible angle to get the Son of God to get this man, Jesus Christ, to sin, tempting him at the level of flesh, tempting him at the level of pride, tempting him uh, at the, 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 the lust of the eyes, throwing everything he possibly could. But in the end, Matthew 4, 11 says the devil left him. The devil left him. He had nothing in him. His character verified who he was. Luke 11 53 and 54 says the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him. They did everything they could to get this man, Jesus Christ, to stumble and he would not stumble. It says in Matthew 26, all the council, the religious leaders, sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Couldn't even find false testimony 
Pilate says in Matthew 27, I have sinned, I'm sorry, Judas says in Matthew 27, after betraying Christ, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Pilate's wife, Pilate was the one who was going to administrate, was going to enforce the request of the people to crucify Christ. Pilate's wife comes to him in Matthew 27 and says, I've had a dream. Listen, you don't have anything to do with this just man. He's just. And Pilate would go on to say, I find no fault in this man. Despite the questioning, despite the interrogations, his character held true. His character affirmed that he indeed is the Messiah, the Son of God. I find no fault in this man. His character affirmed who he was. His claims, listen. If there is a challenge concerning the person of Christ, this man Jesus, if there is a challenge that I would propose to you, if you're just not really sure whether he was a good man, a good teacher, who he was, consider his claims. Consider his claims. No one could make the claims he made and not be who he claimed to be, or otherwise he was totally deranged. He said things like this, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. Who can make such a claim? A man? Only the God-man. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You can't leave him there, friends, as a good man, as a good teacher. His claims won't allow you to. I am the door, he said. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. Who can make such a claim? Who can make such a claim? Only the Christ, the son of the living God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Friends, whether you like it or not, these are the words of Christ. These are his words. No one, no religious person, no do-gooder, no, no one can get to the Father except through me. This is what he said. You either believe it, you bow the knee to the Son of God, or you don't. But he won't allow you to leave him there as a good man. As a good historical figure, he claimed so much more than that. He claimed to be God himself. Finally, these are the seven I am statements, by the way, from the Gospel of John. I am the true vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. These are the words of Christ. Who is he? Who is he? Peter would affirm, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. May it be that each of us, like Martha in John 11, when she heard those words concerning the resurrection of the life, may each of us say, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who has come into the world. Or like the centurion who stood there and watched this man be crucified, 
saw the rumblings of the earth at that time and would say this, truly, this was the Son of God. Truly, this was the Son of God. May that be so for each of us. So, our outline is the confession concerning Christ. Back to Matthew 16, please. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Who is he? This is his person. But he goes beyond that. And this is all prior to the call of Christ, of course, if anyone desires to come after me. This is the context. This is what precedes it. His person, who he is, and indeed his work, what he would do at Calvary. So picture the scene now. For these Jewish men that did determine that Jesus was the Messiah, here they are. And Christ poses a question to them. Who do you say that I am? And Peter makes this proclamation. I wasn't there. I don't know. But I could only imagine. He must have blurted it out. I imagine he said it with some fervor. You were the Christ. The son of the living God. These men saw the kingdom coming now. You're the king, the anointed one. Oh, I could imagine the things that were turning in their mind. Here we are. Here he is, the king. He'll rid us of the the, the Roman oppression. He'll establish a kingdom on earth. We'll be there with him, sitting on his right and his left. Oh, we're going to be part of the kingdom. This is incredible. And Jesus affirmed it. God revealed this to you. The Father revealed this to you. Yes. But then he says these words. From that time, Matthew 16, 21, Jesus began to show his disciples how the kingdom would be established and how they would rule. They would bear up arms. And No, that's not what it says. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Wait a minute, you're the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. I've declared it, Peter would say. You affirmed it. You're going to die? That can't be. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This can't happen to you. This can't happen to you. You're the Messiah. They didn't understand the cross. Not yet. Did they understand the cross? But they would understand the cross. And indeed, they would understand it to the extent that they would die for it. Literally, they lived out the call of Christ. Imagine these men. They're so excited. He's the Christ, the Messiah. They think his kingdom's coming now. He's going to free us from Rome. We're going to rule. And he says, I'm going to die. Peter can't even fathom it. What what do you mean, Lord? It can't be. You can't die. You're the Messiah. But he was going to die. Think about this for a minute. These men later gave their lives literally for this Christ, the one who would die. Uh, Logically, you'd think they'd they leave. And they almost did. At the cross, the Bible says they all forsook him and fled. 
Everyone that followed him, his disciples, they all forsook him and fled, the scripture says. They almost bailed out completely. But there Christ died at Calvary, bearing the sin of the world. Of course, they didn't fully understand that. He was put into a tomb and they were dejected. They would say in Luke 24, we thought he was the one. This was what they said. We thought he was the one. It wasn't until he rose again and they saw him. What could have taken men who believed the kingdom would come now and they would rule and reign under this King Jesus and now he's hanging on the cross and now we see him in the tomb? What could possibly keep them? How about a risen Savior? We saw him alive. Yes, he died, but he's risen again. And in Luke 24, it tells us that Jesus took two of them and he opened the scriptures to them and expounded to them all of the things concerning himself that he would die. But it was purposeful. It was intentional. There are a few things concerning the cross as we close, if you would forward that. The cross of Christ. It was no bump in the road, friends. This was not a mishap, but a must. Jesus said in Matthew 16, I must go to Jerusalem. Sometimes when we have plans, you know, we set out to accomplish one thing or another. And on the way, we may run into speed bumps. Things set us off. Well, I didn't expect that, but we deal with it and we try to press on to accomplish the goal. Friends, that is not the cross. The cross was not a mishap. It was a must. It was part of God's plan. Were you able to forward that at all? It was intentional, done on purpose, not accidental. This is the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ was planned in heaven, prophesied on earth, predicted by Christ himself. I must go, he would say. This was no mistake or road bump, but it was part of the plan. It was intentional, planned by God in heaven, prophesied by men on earth, like scriptures like Isaiah 53, Psalm 24, and indeed predicted by Christ himself. This was not an accident. He must go. This was part of the plan. Intentional. But not just intentional, I suggest to you. The cross was more than intentional. It was pivotal. Pivotal takes it a step further. Sometimes we may intend to do something. Oh, like say for instance, hey, we're going to take a vacation. I might say to my wife, we're going out to the Grand Canyon. We're heading west, you know. And she may say to me, well, you know, as we're on the way there, uh, we'll pass through Georgia. And you know what? Georgia has some, some wonderful peaches, so I've heard. So maybe we could stop and pick up some peaches. Georgia may be intentional, but Georgia is not pivotal. It's not crucial. The main plan is the Grand Canyon. So whether we stop or not, not crucial, though we may plan to do it. The cross of Christ is both intentional and pivotal. It is crucial. It had to be. John 12, 
in verse 27. Let's read Christ's words together. Let's read Christ's words in John 12 and verse 27. Understand that he's approaching the cross. He knows what's ahead of him. He understands the way that he will suffer and be mistreated and be humiliated and be crucified. In the most painful way possible, he would be put to death. And so he says these words, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. The cross of Christ, friends, was not just intentional part of the plan. It indeed was critical, crucial, pivotal. It was the main point of the plan. For this purpose, I came to this hour. What hour? The hour of judgment. The hour of the cross of crucifixion. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The cross was intentional. It was pivotal. I want to say that the cross of Christ goes beyond that. It was indeed intentional, critical, or pivotal. It was also indispensable. That means that there is no possible other way that the plan of God could go forward other than the cross of Christ. No possible way. I don't have time to go into it in, in detail, but just think of the words of Christ there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I'll read them to you from Matthew. I believe it's 26. The cross was indispensable. There was no possible other way for God to accomplish the plan of salvation other than the cross of Christ and the Christ of the cross. Jesus would say in Matthew twenty six thirty nine, just before going to the cross, he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. The cup was the cup of judgment, of wrath. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The cross of Christ was indispensable. We know he went there. For there was no other way for God to carry out the plan of salvation other than through the cross of Christ, indeed the Christ of the cross. It was intentional. It was pivotal. It was indispensable. And indeed it was powerful. And we close with this. The cross of Christ was powerful. That is to say the cross of Christ is totally able, not feeble. Sometimes we may put forth something and we find, oh, no, no, that didn't work. I thought that would hold the wall up, but it didn't work. The cross of Christ is not that. It's totally able, totally able, not feeble. It carried out God's plan. What did the cross of Christ provide? Why was it so powerful? I want to read one verse to you, and forgive me if I lose you, but I'm going to read a verse from 1 Corinthians 1. Many of you probably know this verse. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But 
To us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross of Christ is powerful. Why is it powerful? Well, because of this. Because what the law could not do, that is to say, man's strength, what we could possibly muster up to make ourselves right before God, to gain a right standing, Where we failed, the law could not do it. We in our strength could not do it. We looked at it this morning. Christ did through the cross. Having been justified by faith. Indeed, not of works. Not of works. Man's strength could never gain a right standing before God. Justification only comes through The cross, through the cross. It is upon the cross that God can justify you. You know what justify means? It means to be declared righteous. God can declare you righteous based upon the work of Christ at Calvary because he suffered and paid the price for your sin. And his death, His death and life are imputed to you when you put your faith in Christ. God can justly declare you righteous, justify you based on the cross. The cross is powerful, powerful. Man's strength could never do that. But intellect couldn't do it either. Man's smarts, man's smarts could never get get right with God. In fact, the wisdom of the world of 1 Corinthians 1 says is foolishness with God. Acts 17 tells us of people that they sit there all day and they're just thinking of all kinds of new things. The world is filled with intellectuals, friends. People that are thinkers. Oh, we'll think through it. We'll figure these things out. But man's intellect could never save. Only the cross of Christ could save. And I could go on with that for some time. Paul would say, beware, friends. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men according to the basic principles of the world but not according to christ colossians 2 8 beware man's strength oh it'll never get you there neither will man's smarts neither will man's substance wealth can't do it either friends the psalmist would say the sin of the soul is so deep the wealthy they could never ransom their brother They could never buy redemption, despite what you think or may think. Man's substance can't do it either, friends. Only through the cross of Christ. And lastly, what heritage could not do. Man's stock, you know, people love to take pride in their families. Well, I'm part of this group. I'm part of that group. I'm part of this family. And John the Baptist would rebuke men, religious men, who said, we have Abraham as our father. This is my heritage. Your stock will never get you there, friends. Only the cross of Christ. Man's strength, feeble. Man's smarts, totally unable. Man's substance, our wealth could never do it. Neither could our stock, our heritage. None of that will ever work. Only the cross of Christ. Friends, we have to close. I pray that you will be gripped by the person of Christ, who he is, and by the wonderful, 
powerful, intentional, pivotal, indispensable work that he accomplished at Calvary for you. You could never find justification, righteous standing before God any other way. No possible way, only in Christ. He's the one that's calling you. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you. As we've opened your word today to consider the context of the call of Christ, what a tremendous thing to consider this one who is preeminent, who holds the highest place in heaven and earth and yet took upon himself all of our sin and our shame and went to the lowest place at Calvary for me, for each one here. We give you thanks, our Father. We bless your name. You are good. You are righteous. You are holy. We lift you up. We lift up your son this morning. Only in him can we stand before you. We give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen.